Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. (laughs) Hello, I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and I do hope you had a peaceful, if necessarily disconnected, Easter break. Australia is in a pretty good place compared to most other nations confronting the COVID crisis with just over 60 deaths and the rate of new infections appearing to flatline, not actually at zero, but at a low and steady, fairly manageable level. Imagine being in the US where the Republicans' anti-establishment prank of sending a boastful reality TV celebrity to the White House is now having deadly consequences. Over the weekend, the US surged past Italy as world number one for deaths and infections, with something like 2,000 fatalities a day over the last four days. When the world was crying out for coordination for global leadership, Trump brought denial, gut instinct and utter calamitous failure. His failure now can be measured in body bags more than 21,000 so far and rising steeply. By contrast, indeed by any measure, our government has done pretty well. Despite some glaring missteps, such as telling people to go to the footy while flagging a ban on gatherings of more than 500 people, and of course the Ruby Princess debacle, or disembarkle as some have called it, the mix of restrictions and extraordinary spending announced by Canberra and the various state governments has served this country well. The National Cabinet has functioned, politics as usual was put aside, scientific evidence used to devise policy, and the citizenry seized of the need to go forth and hibernate. This has raised hopes that we might soon be able to begin lifting the harsh social restrictions which are causing such pain for so many and screwing the economy down tight. Yet this is optimistic, perhaps dangerously so. Without a vaccine, there would appear to be three scenarios. One, we relax the restrictions on movement, open our pubs and cinemas and gyms and so forth, and take our chances of a second wave outbreak as is now evident in some of those countries previously held up as models. I'm thinking of Singapore and Japan in particular. Or two, we reach functional zero on new community infections and then relax the restrictions, allowing Australians to go where they like, see who they want and so forth, yet keep our borders closed. Or there's three, which is keep doing what we're doing for a fair bit longer, but who knows for how long. 
So let's see what our panel thinks. With me, as usual, is lecturer in politics here at ANU, Dr. Maria Teflaga. Hi, Maria. Have you been eating chocolate, hot cross buns, or perhaps going healthier? Well, um, I'm actually an Orthodox Christian, so of course, uh, last this Sunday was Palm Sunday for me, uh, and so I'm looking forward to Easter next week, where I'll be, you know, dying eggs and um, working out how to have a sort of disconnected Zoom large family. Um, gathering. That said, though, I, I did enjoy some time away from my computer screen and and work over this sort of long, long weekend. Yes, I think that's been the challenge for people, actually, uh, when you think about it, We're, with so many people working from home. And of course, not everyone can do that. But with so many people working from home, the Easter break comes along, you're not even allowed to go away. And, and so I think for some people, it's probably been a challenge to delineate the difference between the Easter break and all the other days that uh, one is at home, uh, you know, sort of partially doing things that one does at home as well as partially working and so forth. It's quite hard to uh, sort of um, make the days different, isn't it? Yeah, I think it really is. I mean, I've sort of, um, I guess, instituted a whole bunch of like little rituals to sort of help me um, try to maintain these barriers where I can. Um, Though I'm not sure that they're that successful, but... um, I think they're they're better than than uh, than before. For those of us who work at home a lot, you know, they, the the um, the advice I've seen from some experts is uh, is to do those things, as you say, to have some sort of formalising rituals so that you so that you don't end up mixing up, you know, not being at work with being at work. And one of the things they suggest, for example, is you you know you don't do any work in your pajamas. You know, you get up, you you get dressed, you. You, you go through a routine and then you sit down at your desk and you, you know, quite formally do work. But I don't know, have you been observing those sort of things or do you just sort yeah, of uh, yeah, yeah. slope I, over to your computer? I mean, I must admit, I, I'm not, uh, I, I definitely am going for a more relaxed uh, sort of attire here at home, if I can put it that way. Uh, but I don't, I don't like to work in my pajamas. And then at the end of the day, I, I do pack up my desk and um, literally put it away. <laughs> Uh, to put away the all the sort of things I was working on um, just because this is the same computer I use for working is the one I also use for um, a lot of the sort of fun activities I like to do. So I, I really need that um, sort of, I guess, processing at the end of the day and then I try to move away from my computer for a bit and come back before I um, get on with that. Mm, I wonder actually uh... – how many uh, couples are, are struggling with this? Because um, many many houses, I suppose, will have a study in them or, or something that operates as a study. But uh, with both partners um, at home, as is often the case, you know, someone ends up colonising the dining room table or, or or the kitchen table, and that can uh, that can be a source of some tension, as I might just say, as I introduce one of our other guests this week, Virginia Hassiger. I am chair of the 5050 by 2030 Foundation and chief editor of Broad Agenda at the University of Canberra. And of course, Virginia is also my wife. And so she joins us from the same abode as I am broadcasting this from, although in a different room for reasons of, uh, of making all the technology work. And she knows a bit about, <laughs> a bit about these <laughs> tensions. I've been banished. I have been banished to another room. I do know a lot about these tensions, Mark. Um, look, and it's fascinating to to hear you say, Maria, that uh, you, you've developed these rituals because I have too. And yet, Mark and I work at home a lot anyway. Um, we're here without children, just our little noisy schnauzer. But um, we're, we're quite used to doing this. But 
because there is now no option and we've got no one coming in to visit or we can't just pop out, um, I have found that I've really needed to set up some boundaries because otherwise I just keep working all the time. And I'm a shocker for for um, working in my pyjamas. I rather love working in my pyjamas. I get a lot done. I get a real lot done. As long as I get a coffee in the morning, I sit up there. I think it's fine if you work in your pyjamas. I think it just you should just you should just do what works for you. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. Now, look, why don't we at this point bring in our fourth guest? Um, I'm delighted to welcome Reverend Tim Costello AO, who is well known for his many roles in this country, and he's currently co-chair of the Charities Crisis Cabinet. Welcome to you, Tim. I think the last time we saw each other was for dinner in Brussels way back in uh, in oh, a couple of years ago now, back for an Australian-EU leadership forum. And it was a different world then, wasn't it, Tim? I mean, we, for a start, we were we were in, in, engaging in international travel because that was possible. And, of course, all the talk in Europe at the time was, was sort of hand-wringing about Brexit, which seems like a pretty small problem compared to the world we see now. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And uh, I remember you and Laura Tingle and I having muscles in Brussels together. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. It was a, a delightful evening and, as you say, uh, a world away and quite surreal to think of uh, what was worrying us then. Um, I heard you introduce uh, Maria. I think Maria, as an Orthodox Christian, has the best of all worlds. Um, <laughs> she celebrated our Easter and she's got another one coming. Nick, Nick Xenophon, uh, still a good friend, uh, texted me uh, a blessed non-Greek Easter. His is still to come too, Maria. So I think exactly. you get uh, double dipping. You we, do, we do get double dipping. I mean, it's not good at Christmas because I end up eating a lot. Like it's just a sort of festival of overeating. But... Um, <laughs> Perhaps it uh, it just underscores, though, that uh, we're, we're a country of many faiths, including many people who don't have a religious faith. Uh, but the Easter break is has has even even a, a secular sacredness to it, um, and we've really seen that this uh, this Easter because with the extraordinary changes that have been forced on us all, um, government leaders, uh, you know, health authorities, police, everyone's been really sort of hammering this message about the need to take the, the current situation seriously and to stay at home because leaving home during this four-day break at this time of year is such a, um, uh, you know, such a culturally embedded thing in Australia and uh, it really has taken quite an effort by, by everyone to change their habit this year and, uh, and just stay in. Yeah, it really has and often we uh, have a self-image of being larrikins, anti-authoritarian, no one's going to tell us what to do. I think what we've seen is fantastic uh, tribute to human solidarity. As a 65-year-old now, I realise my fate is in the hands of others. And I'm very glad that uh, Australians have been uh, so compliant. Uh, some would say we're much more obedient and compliant. Uh, we totally are. Than our, our image of ourselves. And maybe this has proved it. It's a really good point because we do like that whole larrikin thing, that whole kind of uh, cock-a-snoot at, uh, at authority and all of that. But, in fact, we, uh, we we turn out to be fairly obedient. Or perhaps maybe we could take a, a more positive view of it and say that we are actually open to a sound argument and a pretty sound argument has been put by representatives of, of all political sides and that's been fairly convincing. 
I agree with you on that, Mark. I think that uh, Australians, particularly uh, through my experience in, in media over decades, um, you, you get a really good sense of Australians' ability to work out very quickly or an audience works out very quickly, um, you know, the truth from the falsities. And I think that they do listen to a reasonable argument. And whilst the leadership uh, to date in Australia around the national response has been, um, uh, well, it was confusing initially. And, and of course, it's very, very male dominated. And we can come to that in a moment. But it, nevertheless, the, the messages have been calm. Um, and I think there's been a certain, the response has been quite respectful. Um, that the larrikin idea of Australians not wanting to be told what to do, quite frankly, I think that's, that's kind of passed. But uh, people have respected the, the information they've been given and taken it relatively seriously. So I also think this has been a wonderful time to for people to show kindness. Um, you know, we go out walking every day and does just as does everyone else in Canberra, I think, and uh, people are just, everyone's so um, kind to, towards each other and, 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 and um, friendly. And everyone there, there says hello. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a sort of a great uh, empathy out there. I certainly haven't seen anything ugly, um, despite the odd things that fly around Twitter, which are a very, very much the minority, I believe. Indeed. Now, Tim, let's go back to this thing called the uh, the Charities Crisis Cabinet, because as Virginia was making the point, uh, you know, there does seem to be a lot of kindness around at the moment, but nonetheless. This crisis affects people in different socioeconomic groups differently and it affects charities differently. So perhaps uh, if you could say a few things about why you had to form this, uh, this, um, this charities crisis cabinet. Yeah, we formed this uh, crisis cabinet because so much of uh, Australia's heavy lifting in a crisis is actually done by charities. Unusually, uh, so much of our government uh, welfare is, char- is channelled through charities and uh, suddenly uh, charities are in crisis because giving has not just flatlined, it's dipped dramatically and most charities don't have reserves. Um, uh, We don't actually have uh, good figures on this, but our figures would certainly be like uh, Britain's, which does have good figures. Britain shows that 60% of charities only have six months uh, reserves, 25% of their charities only have three months reserves, and uh, that would certainly be true in Australia. Look, the other reason is that charities um, have often been the invisible, um, non-invited partner to the table. So if you have a a top-level government uh, uh, bargaining agreement, a business will be there, the unions will be there, uh, I think Productivity Commission and other groups will be there, but never charities. And yet charities uh, employ... 1.3 million Australians, which is huge, and that's Mm. contributing 8% of the Australian GDP comes from this sector. So it's much bigger, but because of its fragmentation, never able to speak with one voice, and therefore governments would often go, oh, well, there's different voices, uh, and ignore charities. So the, the charities cabinet was to say, How come we were initially missing out the charity sector in the first stimulus package? How come we're invisible again? We need to get focused. We need to come together. And that's what the charities crisis cabinet's all about. And one of the things, you you had some early success on that, haven't you, with uh, getting uh, some special consideration in respect of the JobKeeper payment. 
um, by virtue of uh, this, uh, what is it, a, a 15, your, your charities are required to show they've had a 15% reduction in turnover as distinct from normal businesses which are a 30% threshold. Yeah, because of the invisibility, it was almost a wake-up when we wrote to uh, Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg and said, do you realise, and they went, oh, hadn't thought about this. Uh, most charities have their big fundraising time uh, from March to 30th of June, tax time, uh, and a lot of them are public events. Uh, so if you're going to judge us for jo- job keeper, our books look okay up to December for most charities, um, but the massive drop uh, is actually about to happen fundraising because no no fundraising events can really be run, uh, quite apart from the fact that Australians are anxious and they're simply saying, I don't know about my future, I'm, I'm not going to give uh, uh, at the moment. So we needed that figure to be dropped from a loss of 30% of revenue to 15% of revenue because uh, before this last quarter of fundraising, the big one, our, fun, our, our finances looked okay in the charitable sector. So that, that was a great win, having a 15% floor. Yeah, that's right. And the, the, um, the, the, there are now three thresholds really for that because for companies with turnover above a billion dollars a year, they have to show a loss of revenue of 50%. Yep. Uh, most other companies, a loss of revenue of 30%, and charities now this 15 Now, the logic of the delineation between those those two others, the, the normal companies and those with a turnover above a billion dollars, the logic the government gives for that is that really large companies, the ones with very big turnover, have sufficient reserves on their balance sheet to whether you know to restructure internally and to and to move things around and to survive better during this downturn charities uh, interestingly are probably on the other end of that aren't they they don't have much in the way of reserves on their balance sheet at all we, that's kind of the way we want them yeah no the the first question anyone asks is what are your overheads and if your overheads are low they are more inclined to give and if it's dollars in and dollars out not putting it into reserves they are much more inclined to give the the overheads question has always been a bit tricky because uh uh, as I often say, if my wife was ill and I needed urgently a doctor and didn't have one, would I ring medical clinics and, as my first question, ask what are the overheads of this medical clinic and then choose the medical clinic with the lowest overheads? I would actually say, my wife's got these symptoms. What's your success rate in treating someone with these symptoms? I don't mind about the overheads. So uh, effectiveness is not always the same as efficiency, but charities sadly have competed with each other on low overheads and low reserves uh, to win public trust and then in a coronavirus find themselves unusually vulnerable with no overhead, uh, no reserves. So uh, that's, that's the other crisis that really hit the charity sector. I think it also kind of goes to show uh, the, the, the lack or the sort of oversight from government, just, just how much the charity sector has sort of filled, I guess, the breach in the Australian social safety net in recent um, decades. And given what you're sort of saying about the sort of drying up of funding for the charity sector and the fact that government support will be uneven for for the sector, 
it, it will be really interesting to sort of see what is sort of left at the end of this crisis and what impacts that will have for the vulnerable in our community and whether or not we're prepared to continue tolerating that. Yeah, we, we have a historical situation here, and I was reminding our charities minister, Zed Zazelgic, uh, this, that uh, all charities really are Bob Menzies' children. Um, what, <laughs> what Britain did after the Second World War was much more national health systems and universal safety nets. Uh, Australia did a bit of that, but literally Menzies said... Uh, rather than going down that track, we're going to fund as a government the existing charities. Most of them happen to be Christian faith-based charities, given it was just after war years, which is why Christian faith-based charities are still by far the, the largest in Australia. Uh, of the 25 biggest charities, 22 are Christian faith-based. In America, of the 25 biggest charities, only 10 are Christian faith-based. Wow. In Britain, only four of the 25 biggest charities are Christian faith-based. And why? Because Menzies said, we're going to fund the monies through the Salvation Army or what was then Presbyterian, now Uniting Church, Prezies and Methodists or St. Vinnie's. So literally all the charities are Menzies' children, still doing the heavy lifting, very different, say, to the British landscape. And uh, the memory of that had been lost and the fragmentation of the sector meant that there wasn't a voice clearly speaking. Thus, the charities crisis cabinet. Tim, what's your workforce like in, in terms of the gender makeup across uh, the charity sector? I'm, I'm assuming, and look, I might be wrong, but I'm assuming that it's, it's dominated by women workers. Yep, rather absolutely than right. Uh, 70% are, are, are women, and so it's a feminised workforce. And uh, that has been another feature of this, which um, may well go to uh, a whole lot of questions we're going to raise about uh, who on the, is on the front line and paying the highest cost in this coronavirus. So what what is a medical emergency has made visible the social fractures, and we know a comorbidity really is being poor or being female to this virus. Uh, that's, that's what's actually starting to emerge uh, as we lift the lid. And look, it, it's not as if there hadn't been warnings about this for some time. It's just now that it's been put under such a spotlight. But for example, Australia's very heavily gendered gender segregated workforce has now really uh, come under the microscope because it is uh, predominantly our healthcare workers, our frontline social assistance workers, uh, care workers, um, uh, educators, etc., that are um, people in those very feminised workforces and we're, we're seeing it in full light now. But it's it's created also, I believe, a, a rather false economy or an economy that is that is uh, built around the fact that women will work in these low-paid uh, sectors and industries and that also that women will continue to do the lion's share of unpaid work, um, care work in particular at home of children. That's all beginning to come tumbling down right now, I think, particularly when we look at the, the difficulty of um families who are at home uh, and having to face uh, ma managing children, looking after children and do homeschooling uh, whilst also trying to hold down a job. 
Which is just not realistic. This is, of course, if you're in a lucky enough position to be able to work from home. Mm. Um, and if you are in that position, a lot of what you're going to be doing isn't necessarily essential to the economy as, say, someone who works in retail or someone who works as a cleaner. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of glib to sort of say this, but this is actually sort of an important and overlooked um, point in some of the debates mm. that we're we're having yeah. around. Uh, I, I agree, Maria. And look, I think that the stats, and I'm going to just give you a few because I think they're really, really startling and people just don't quite understand how incredibly gender segregated Australia is when it comes to the workforce. But the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, the government's agency, breaks all our, our um, sectors into 19 industries. And of those 19 industries, six of them are dominated by women. And of course, they're all the lowest paid industries. But most importantly, and and rather urgently, we need to understand that the healthcare and social assistance industry, uh, the workforce there is made up 80% of women. So it's a female, 80% female workforce. We also know that a huge number of Australians, more so than any other OECD country, Australian women work in casual arrangements and part-time arrangements, of course, in the most precarious way. Um, so the likely the, the, the people on the front line now who are critical to our frontline response are predominantly women who who way too much has been asked of them right now, uh, and also they're grappling with this. If this goes on for much longer, home isolation, and we've got if they happen to be in two income uh, households, they've got to then decide well who's going to give up a little bit of work. Invariably, it will be the women who do that because we have a, a, a stubborn persistence uh, pay gap in Gender Australia. wage gap, yeah. So what you're saying there, Virginia, is that is that when that conversation happens, because uh, as a cohort, because men tend to be the uh, earning more, the, the major breadwinner in the old language, the d- the decision will be made within each of those households to to sacrifice the, the female's job, paid work, in order to take up those other responsibilities before it will be for the for the male. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, yeah that, that's precisely right. And look, this is, you know, it, it's these are personal choices that people make for a range of reasons. But the pure economic one, the household dividend, if you want to call it, it rests on the fact that we have a major pay gap in Australia of 20.8% or 21%. That's for total full-time remuneration or 14% if we look at base pay. But nevertheless, we have a pay gap um, that is significant such that that women and men, once they have to uh, make a decision about how they organise their time at home in isolation if they have children to manage as well, of course, are going to make the economic decision. Um, and, look, I've got to say, I, at the 50-50 by 2030 Foundation, we've been talking about this over Zoom, of course, but for the last several weeks, and I have been really quite shocked by some of the anecdotes I'm hearing, not only from people that we talk with, but even some of my own colleagues who are saying, things such as, look, I'm going to have to cut back to two days a week or three days a week because my partner earns more and we've only got one study, as you mentioned before, Mark, and, um, you know, we've got three kids at home and it's chaos. Exactly. Uh, You know, these are really hard decisions, but they, you know, they're they're sharp economic ones as well. And if I could link uh, this to why 
70% in the charity sector are women. Charity, uh, as we know, is the old English word for love. And the charity sector has seen itself as actually the care sector, love institutionalised and organised. And we know that there has always been a care deficit that women particularly have borne the burden of, have been more sensitive to. And I think the virus has really lifted the lid on the care deficit. Suddenly, we all need care. And the frontline workers are the ones doing the caring. And who do they happen to be? And in some ways, that has been mirrored in pre-COVID-19 times in the charity sector. That care deficit has been met largely by a feminised workforce. That's a really interesting point, Tim. Let's take a quick break and come back and, uh, and, and delve into that a little bit further. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. Um, Tim, you were saying just before the break about this notion of the care deficit that the coronavirus has, or the crisis that uh, that we face, both the economic one in response to the crisis, I guess, um, and, and the virus itself. But it's exposed weaknesses all over our society, really, and one of them is this care deficit. To just expand on that point, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, I'm particularly worried, given my um, international work in the past, that uh, the turning inwards to protect ourselves totally natural still uh, fundamentally doesn't understand that because we are so connected biologically by microscopic germs that... Uh, the, there are links between the health of one person and the health of everyone on the planet. And the mad scramble at the moment for testing kits uh, uh, and PPE, uh, determined often by money, determined, as we've discovered in the New York Times, uh, by uh, Mossad in Israel and the uh, head of Mossad uh, uh, getting uh, testing uh, units from hostile nations, um, now needs to say the world actually can never go back to normal until we also protect the poorest countries, uh, middle-income countries that are starting to be hit. And they they have, uh, most African countries have fewer ICU beds than just one Manhattan hospital, and we've seen the disaster there. So the care deficit is global. 
And uh, I don't think we've put a global lens on this of how we actually uh, come out of this, given that we're so biologically linked. But the care deficit in Australia is exactly where we're going to, that we uh, had until now not really named, maybe Virginia and others who had been working on this had, that uh, it is uh, women who've been filling that care deficit either on low pay or no pay and bearing the burden. Uh, that's what I was meaning about it. Mm. Hey, Tim, can I ask you, I'm just curious to know also the bigger picture as to how charities are doing, how donations are doing. And I ask this with the background of I've sat on the board of various NGOs and in the last several years we've really struggled with what we call compassion fatigue, particularly around gender equality and women's empowerment. Um, people are sick of hearing about it. And this compassion fatigue started showing up in, in funds or lack of. Um, how are how are donations going at the moment? Our donations are going terribly. Uh, donations have completely gone south. Uh, and until now, the Australian public was still quite generously giving to international NGOs. Uh, it was our government and the leadership there that had failed us terribly. So mm. our aid was at its highest level under Bob Menzies, 0.51% of um, gross national income, smashed by the hockey uh, Abbott budget of 2014 to its lowest level ever. Now it's at 0.19%, whereas the Brits, the Scandinavians uh, have kept their promises and it's 0.7%, or 70 cents and $100, if you like. So we'd given ourselves a leave pass all to get a budget surplus. Uh, we had withdrawn aid almost totally from uh, um, Africa, uh, cut back just about everywhere in Asia, uh, pinched the crumbs from the Asian table to say we're going to do a Pacific step up. Well, we, we now know that, you know, there are 36 doctors for every 100,000 Australians. In New Guinea, uh, our nearest neighbour, it's one doctor for every 100,000 there. So the coronavirus, with the cutting of the aid and with the uh, uh, inter interdependence of the world, is profoundly uh, uh, significant and reflects the failure of Australian government leadership on this question, unlike other nations. What about the um, uh, food and so forth, you know, that is non-money donations? Uh, because there are all kinds of ways in which charities would do their work and which uh, uh, assistance is provided to the needy, which are not just about money, they're about contact and about providing services and goods to, to people who need them. How, how has that been affected by these restrictions? Well, in Australia, food became suddenly a crisis. So Food Bank and Oz Harvest and others could not get their uh, donated expired cans because there was hoarding and bulk buying. And suddenly, uh, those distributions to our own homeless uh, were, were inaccessible and, and dried up. Now, the government has responded with a $100 million package in the last few days for our own uh, homeless and uh, at risk. And... Uh, extrapolate that out uh, globally, and uh, we know that um, this is uh, now the crisis of this pandemic as we now retribalize and only think nationally of ourselves in an interdependent world that we can never actually be safe unless we are now providing proper funding 
for uh, uh, testing and for medical services in the uh, in the developing world. So, at every level, it's what I said earlier: uh, a comorbidity is actually poverty. We we know, and in America, a comorbidity is race. It's uh, yes. the blacks and Hispanics, and particularly again women. So suddenly, a virus that doesn't discriminate. Tom Hanks gets it, and Boris Johnson gets it. Is profoundly discriminating on who absol- who who actually gets access to health care, and. That then affects all of us. We can't just go back to normal unless we deal with this globally because we are all biologically connected on this planet. It's interesting, Tim, uh, the the impacts uh, are so profoundly gendered, I think, and yet we, as you say, um, the virus itself doesn't discriminate as to what body tissues it will enter, but not only who gets tested and who gets supported, and but who's at the front line, as we know, predominantly women, but also the, the impacts of the economic shock uh, around the world, as well as Australia, also hit women very hard. And you just mentioned um, uh, New Guinea, Papua New Guinea, where Australia's aid um, is, is well, it's one of the highest recipients of Australian aid, and yet it has been uh, cut back consistently, as you, as you say. That also is one of the nations in the world in which it is the worst place to be a woman. The yeah. violence against women, particularly up in the highlands, now sits at 100%. So when we introduce things such as uh, home isolation or and uh, social distancing, what have you, to places such as the Papua New Guinea and other nations around the Pacific, we know it's very, very, very difficult. Women are once again being um, threatened not just by the virus but by the, the circumstances in which they've been forced into women at risk. And we're seeing this in Australia too. I've just got to say I was really quite embarrassed when a week ago um, the United Nations Secretary-General held a press conference talking about the increase in violence against women around the world as a result of, of the yeah. COVID virus. And he pointed out, or in the in the press release that came out, uh, Australia was singled out for having one of the biggest increases in uh, reports of uh, calls for help to a hotline service in New South Wales, a 40% increase in calls since the virus had really taken hold in this country. Um, that. I mean, that, that is quite terrifying, really terrifying to think that we are uh, dealing with an, a desperate increase in need for support and help to the services which in Australia have also been significantly defunded. Maria, that um, uh, point that Virginia makes about frontline services is a really interesting one. Anthony Albanese said in the uh, single day sitting in the House of Reps uh, last week, uh, made the point about... Um, the, the wages that many of these people are being paid on the front line or in services that uh, we regard as essential. And he, he went as far as to say that it's a form of market failure because we're finding out there are all these people who are doing jobs that turn out to be absolutely crucial to our survival but who are not remunerated as if they are absolutely pivotal workers. It's, a, it's an interesting point to make, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean... I guess from a strict sort of economics perspective, you you would argue that, well, a lot of this work is less skilled or, you know, um, that would be the sort of classic line. But I think what this whole crisis has sort of drawn a line under is the way in which our society is currently organised, which 
doesn't necessarily place the correct or the proper or the full value on um, essential things that we actually need to happen in order for society to function. And that goes to the sort of care deficit that we've been talking about. Another way of kind of looking at this is to actually kind of look at the sort of descriptive representation amongst those that are making decisions for us. And, you know, I pointed out last week that the whole debacle around haircuts um, was reflective of, um, you know, perhaps the dominance of, of men making um, decisions uh, for for the whole country and perhaps being a bit blind to some of these um, uh, sort of disproportionate impacts on, on on women. I mean, we already know that women generally require more social services than men because they're usually caring for people, so they're more likely to access them. Um, but I think what has been really interesting about the sort of discourse that has arisen um, as the sort of initial crisis has receded is uh, that the, the reality that the fact that people have been saying that you know we have a gender wage gap that um, that people with disabilities are really struggling to get access to the services they need either because uh, of hoarding because they can't get to supermarkets or because simply for the fact that they're being denied services because of um, social distancing requirements and the raise in new start it, it sort of has kind of hung a, a lantern on the fact that now that these restrictions are actually facing, quote unquote, you know, mainstream members of society or privileged members of society, you know, men or able-bodied people, etc., that it's suddenly kind of drawing into the spotlight these things that advocates have been saying for a really long time. And, you know, that's, I guess, one way of sort of thinking about a market failure. But I guess the more important question is, is what is the sort of political will following on from this to see these things change because that is not guaranteed. That that's such an important question, Maria. A really important one. I mean, I I get frustrated when I hear people already talking about the snapback and that we you know soon we'll snap back to the way we were. I hope we never snap back because these very fundamental things that have been exposed for the very reasons you just outlined there, uh, we need to actually deal with, the pay gap being one of them, the gender-segregated workforce being another, um, you know, the heavy reliance of our system and our society on care um, and charities, you know, being another. And can I just point out too, I, I mentioned before the pay gap, the national pay gap in Australia being 21%. When we take just the medical and healthcare services sector, if we pluck that out of the healthcare and social assistance workforce, which, as I said before, is 80% women, women, if we take the medical and healthcare services, 78% of that workforce is women, the pay gap, the gender pay gap is 32%. And that, 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 that are the current figures, 32%. So these sorts of things, as you say, Maria, are being exposed, they're being you know, spotlighted. We have to address them if we're really going to become a, a, um, a, a, you know, a solid uh, economy and a, um, you know, a fair society, a fair community as we advance through the next decade. And, and unfortunately, it's taken something like this to really highlight it. I mean, I think what is interesting, like another way of looking at that 
I, I mean, I agree with everything you've just said there, Virginia. I think another way of looking at that surge of um, calls to domestic violence services in New South Wales and the fact that the government had announced a, a package um, for domestic violence assistance, it, it also sort of points to the fact that at least this convers- these conversations are being had and that, um, you know, at, uh, it is possible that it is just that women are now more likely to report um, domestic violence and to have that being taken um, seriously. I, I saw that New South Wales police had redirected a lot of their sort of traffic police to effectively going around to check on known domestic violence cases in in New South Wales. So that's like potentially a a positive or silver lining to what is some really troubling um, statistics there. But I guess going forward, you know, there's been a lot of talk about um, how well the government's sort of handled this response. And broadly speaking, I think our governments across Australia have done um, a good job, particularly when you compare them to states across um, the world. Um, but it there are like many very difficult decisions that governments will be making in the next two years, um, which go to like how long will the lockdown last? How long will income support arrangements stay in place? Will we be keeping welfare payments at the current rate that they are? And more importantly, we've got we're going to have this large amount of of debt, um, and that will need to be uh, serviced. And that actually raises really important questions about what is it that government spending is going to to uh, be focused on, and um, and that will sort of absolutely shape. Uh, what kinds of change that we'll have? I mean, the government keeps talking about a snapback, and and that doesn't necessarily presage that we will sort of see changes to our social structure that we might want that might actually set us up for a fairer, more equal, and possibly more prosperous society in the future. Well, I think that the language of snapback made a bit more sense earlier on uh, when there was at least a hope that this might be relatively short and sharp. And I think as the severity of it has has, uh, has dawned on people and it's almost been a psychological journey for, for individuals and for governments uh, and just the un- unknown length of this and, and the complexity of it in terms of its impact on the economy, I think the whole snapback thing you know, sounding more and more ridiculous. But, Tim, it's an interesting point that Maria makes about what comes next because if we scroll forward to a point where we are trying to rebuild the, the national balance sheet, it's almost like some of the good work that's been done here in terms of, say, doubling the dole, uh, albeit because, you know, a whole lot of new people were being thrown on it, but that that's an argument that had been going on for a long time with no dividend and suddenly, uh, you know, there was a doubling. It's it, The fear must be, surely, that when governments are trying to get the budget back into shape after this is uh, receding into the background, that it'll be, again, the vulnerable, those with the least political power, who are finding that they are on the, uh, on the, on the rough end of a lot of spending cutbacks by the government. Yeah, we, we all know that politics is essentially about... Um, who gets what they want and who misses out. And uh, every budget that uh, is brought down is really a, a statement of uh, how did the vulnerable miss out again. Uh, when we think mm. of uh, the increase in New Start, uh, uh, Job Seeker, well, it was un- incredible to think you'd have a Governor of the Reserve Bank and John Howard and Jennifer Westercott of the Business Council of Australia saying increase it, screaming increase it, and it wasn't increased. And we now look back and go, Really? 
what was that power trip actually about? Um, so I think we we need to be talking in terms of a snap forward, uh, the, the rather than a snap back. And a snap forward is the health crisis has lifted the fog on the social inequalities going on uh, right, but before our eyes, and we can't snap back to those social inequalities. I keep saying this has got to have some global implications also because of the profound interdependence. And for Australia as a trading nation, uh, if we see the whole world become nativist and uh, retribalized and turning inwards to protectionism, for Australia, that's disastrous too. Yeah. Uh, so we, we actually now have some really profound political choices to face uh, with the fog having been, been lifted on this, uh, this social inequality that the health crisis really has shown up. It's a, it's a really interesting point. I'd like to end maybe just by getting a comment from all of you about politics generally and perhaps because this is a, a positive way to end to some extent. There's a general view that, uh, as, as a couple of you have mentioned, uh, that governments in Australia have done pretty well when you compare the performance of a lot of other places around the world. Um, but, uh, ha ha you know, have we seen politics revitalised or will politics also snap back and do so quite quickly back to its old partisan self? Um, who wants to start? Well, I'll jump in there, Mark. I um, And I disagree with you on, on some of this. I think you've been quite generous in your your praise of how the government has, has handled this. Um, I, again, because my focus is, is gender, I uh, am incredibly frustrated that many of the things that women, women advocates have been saying for three or four decades, certainly in my um, professional lifetime, uh, is only now just bubbling to the, to the surface as if it's new. So the, the gender workforce being one, the pay gap being another, the over-reliance on uh, women to do the lion's share of unpaid work. We have been talking about this for 40 years. So for, for it now to be spotlighted, yes, that's important. As I said, I'm sorry that it's taken, taken this, but it's so critically important that our leadership remodels itself. And in Australia, it was very disappointing to see that on the 25th of March, when the Prime Minister announced his National COVID Coordination Commission with 10 people, including himself and the, the CMO, um, Brendan Murphy, uh, among that 10 were only two women. And look, I am tired of seeing policies that directly impact women's lives in Australia being made and decided not by women, but, but by those quite remote from those life experiences. Until we get a greater gender balance and gender input and, of men and women in our leadership at a political level, we're going to keep making these same mistakes, I believe. I think that um, we've sort of had a bit of a pause on uh, the sort of usual um, partisan politics uh, whilst we've kind of gathered our... Um, resources and reserves. But I do think that we will see a return to partisan politics pretty quickly uh, once um, once we have to start making really difficult choices about exactly how long we our society sort of stays in, in hibernation and exactly what we choose to fund or not fund, what comes afterwards. But perhaps what might be different from before, and I hope it is, is that Perhaps there will be less of the gamemanship 
of politics than we have been used to for the last 10 years where effectively politics has become a, a series of media management opportunities because the stakes have now been raised really very high, not, in ter- not, in, not only in terms of people's lives but also in terms of their futures. And so whilst I don't think it will be pretty, it might actually be a lot more substantive. Tim, can I just finish with you and and, and in doing so just perhaps hone the question a bit? I mean, Morrison's actually uh, been rewarded with some pretty good poll numbers uh, through as this crisis has has proceeded and and that's presumably because, uh, you know, politics has been functioning better and uh, the government's been, you know, dialling in all of this assistance, quite a dramatic shape shift from where it was. Um, But also perhaps Morrison was a a politician, a national leader going into this crisis having, you know, quite severely bungled the bushfire crisis. And that in itself put him into the mindset of having to really lean into this and do well. Um, Perhaps therefore we can take some, have some optimism that he will realise that there's a lot to be said in terms of voter support for governments getting on and doing things, perhaps being less political and more policy driven. Yeah, I think uh, all of us sense we're at a fork in the road as to which path we take, the, the, the higher path or the lower path, we don't actually know. Um, the fork in the road is, uh, whether it's with Morrison personally or the body politic, is uh, been likened to people who have a, a life crisis and might be sickness or might be something else and they suddenly get perspective of what really is important and let other things that were polarising drop away. That's that's the high road, which we all hope for, that actually if we can trust medical experts, well, we might just trust climate change experts too and uh, take uh, equally uh, equally significant steps. Um, look, I, I think uh, your analysis of um, Prime Minister Morrison is... Uh, quite right. I think uh, our numbers compared to the mistakes made elsewhere give him uh, credit in the bank. I know there will be some in his party who, uh, uh, you know, don't want to be known as Keynesians or socialists and want to snap back very, very savagely. But uh, I do hope uh, he takes uh, the other the higher road and this fork in the road because I think it's a moment that maybe has defined his leadership and given that he won the election virtually uh, solo without much help from the party, I think uh, if he can uh, actually strengthen now, uh, let's call it uh, the high road, uh, that's a hopeful sign. As to whether he will or it will snap back, I don't know, but we do have a choice. I tell you what, I've been covering politics for a long time and I've read these kinds of signals in the past wrongly, uh, so I guess it's altogether possible that uh, we will just get a reversion to the kind of government we had before. Uh, We're just going to have to wait and see. Thanks so much for joining us on this Democracy Sausage. That's all we've got time for today. So thanks to Maria Teflaga, to Virginia Hausiger and Tim Costello. It's been a terrific conversation. We look forward to talking to you on next week's Democracy Sausage. Bye for now. Bye. Wash your hands. (laughs) 